hailed by many as the greatest city in the world. New York grew from a series of small settlements in the 17th century to a bustling metropolis by the 19th through a combination of excellent geography, intensive trade and industrial development, and a concentration of cultural and business acumen. The growth produced tremendous problems along with the opportunities, as the limits of Manhattan Island in particular forced buildings to grow ever higher and the people living among them to accept more and more cramped living conditions. Robert Moses, leading the charge to build public works to better manage this growth via bridges, parks, and housing projects, came up against fierce resistance in the 1960s, however, when other powerful groups, chiefly the Rockefeller family and local communities led by Jane Jacobs, saw the power concentrated in City Hall as overbearing, eventually leading to the end of the great urban renewal programs that had reshaped and modernized the city for the past 30 years. I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time Hello and welcome to the Myth of the 20th Century. Uh, today we're honored to have a very good friend of the show come back and talk about municipal planning, New York City, Manhattan, the controversy around... Uh, urbanism uh, versus communitarianism. Jane Jacobs, Robert Moses, uh, get ready for a blast from the past, uh, going back to the halcyon days of the 60s, the 50s uh, in New York City. Uh, Dark, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, We have a full crew, by the way, Hank, Hans, and Nick. Uh, Some of us are just about to join, but we're all going to be on for this one. Uh, So, Dark, thanks for coming on. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me back. It's good to good to talk to you all again. Absolutely. So, what inspired you to want to talk about this? Were you a Robert Moses fan, or a Jane Jacobs fan, or neither? It's kind of a both and. And and Robert Moses is an interesting fellow because he there's the pre-war progressive Moses who is really a secular humanist. I mean, he was ethnically Jewish. But um, you know, he converted. He was buried in the Episcopal Church, and and there's a and there's really uh, the guy that got New York destroyed all the old tenements and and built parks for people, including most notably like Jones Beach, um, and you know built a bunch of parks on Long Island so that the poor people in the city could actually go and enjoy their lives. There's that guy, and then there's the guy that like bulldozed everything. And they're the same person, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting contrast, I guess. And that is what we're talking about. And of course, Jane Jacobs is the, you know, Bohemian, you know, the, the German girl from Scranton who, um, you know, went to the big city, lived in the big city, lived this single Bohemian life for over a decade, and then, you know, got married late, uh, 
relatively late for the time, you know, 29. Uh, and then, you know, eventually left the United States over over opposition to the Vietnam War. So they're both very complicated people and they're both very interesting. The uh, the Robert Moses, the uh, the biography, I think that's kind of the way that he entered uh, the sort of popular uh, conception, because that's a very kind of NPR crowd uh, book. Uh, I don't oh, the know power, that. You know, yeah, the Power Broker by Robert Caro. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know that anyone sort of, unless you were already interested in kind of uh, urban planning issues or, you know, the history of New York City. Aside from that, I don't know that uh, there's sort of an independent uh, conception of Robert Moses aside from that book. Aside from his PhD thesis. Robert Carroll does a good job of writing about power, though. He does an excellent job. and and yeah, He's also written about um, Johnson, LBJ. Yeah. No, and, and when you think about who was mayor and who was governor of New York during, you know, basically from the 20s to the 60s, when Robert Moses had power, um, substantial amounts of power, uh, at times holding as many as 12 offices at any particular time, um, you know, Parks Commissioner, President, uh, the Triborough Bridge uh, Authority, you know, President and, and that sort of thing. Um, Fiorello LaGuardia, um, uh, John Lindsay, um, Franco Delano Roosevelt was governor, like uh, Rockefeller, who finally actually pushed him out, really. But but an astonishing array of the 20th century's most important political figures uh, dealt with Robert Moses. So what what was his... uh mission statement in life did it evolve was he always about uh, bringing mega projects to cities like new york uh, or was he focused on other parts of the world uh, was it uh, an approach of uh, centralization was it an approach of engineering was it an approach of uh, architectural design kind of paint a picture of like what this guy was uh, doing every day when he got up uh so he was, he was a early 20th century progressive who, um, you know, when he, he wrote a bunch of reports that were, you know, do-gooder organizations that went nowhere. And then he got hooked up with a Tammany Hall machine and Al Smith through uh, Mrs. Moskowitz. Uh, that was an, she was an advisor to Al Smith. And they, you know, they took the absolutely Byzantine government of the state of New York that had like 187 separate bureaus for different things and consolidated it into basically something like what you see now. And that became a model for many other, you know, other states were doing something like this. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Tammany Hall thing where the, the chief reason for government was jobs for the boys uh, was certainly part of it. But there was no political science as such. And, and Moses went to, I believe, y Yale and then Oxford and then um, received a PhD from Columbia in political science um, in the early 20th century. And his family was relatively wealthy. His father had owned in a department store um, 
and and re- retired relatively early with you know the, the uh, a few million dollars I guess which was a lot of money then but um, he wasn't super wealthy but wealthy enough that he didn't really have to get a salary so he could afford to kind of be a do-gooder on crusade and then he got power under Al Smith because he was the guy they could afford to work work with Al Smith on parks and and things like that and uh you know Al Smith people think of as this cigar chomping Tammany Hall uh politician that was super corrupt but Al Smith was also the guy who made sure that you know he, he, Al Smith was always uh the the poor Irish kid from the slums and uh Rob Moses to his credit thought that those those same people should have um parks and they should have a government that was responsive to them and that sort of thing and so so before the call you mentioned that gangs of new york was uh sort of a good visual of what the city looked like back uh i guess that was really in the 1800s but in the early 1900s and maybe the 20s and 30s what were things like that? Were were they that chaotic? Yes. And they were that they were there. That um, there's a book called "The Way the Other Half Lives." Um, let me look that up real quick. Uh, but the tenements, the so-called old law tenements in New York City, were just these horrible places where, you know, there were places that had no light and just had air shafts. And the reason they had air shafts is, you know, people just suffocated for lack of fresh air mm. um, um, in these places. And there were, you know, 30 people using one toilet, uh, um, the, the, that sort of thing. And in most, the way most people would have seen it is in gangs in New York, the tenements that you see in those shots. Um and so, you know, Robert Moses was a proponent of big government making um, making people do certain things. Um, you know, he was uh, Al Smith's father died when Al was relatively young. Um, he, had, he had to leave school in the eighth grade. Um, and, uh, you know, his poor widowed mother nearly worked herself to death, Smith's mother. Um, and, uh, you know, Moses worked really hard on behalf of those sorts of people, even though, you know, his father was this henpecked, um, like stereotypically the wife was the one who, you know, was in charge and his grandmother had been the same way. Um, but, you know, Moses had this imperious, um, uh, like I'm always right. And, uh, manner about him that he received, that he inherited from his, um, from his grandmother and his mother. Um, and it, it actually got quite a bit done. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, How the Other Half Lives, Studies Among the Tenements of New York from 1890 um, by Jacob Rees is, uh, you know, things hadn't basically changed in those tenements in the intervening 20 years. Um, and um, after um, the prosperity of the 20th century, you know, the, the paper prosperity of the 20s, 
Um, you know, nothing got built in the thirties because of the depression. Um, and then, you know, the war came and there was this, uh, you know, multiple things to deal with. Uh, there was this great massive returning veterans, um, that wanted to start families and didn't want to live in these tenements. There was the, the great migrations North of African-Americans from the South, um, that had come to the city and come to Philadelphia, Boston, you know, E. Michael Jones's book, The Slaughter of Cities, kind of details that. Um, but, you know, Moses was the guy uh, who had a vision. And uh, even though uh, FDR uh, did not like Moses, uh, because he had this vision, when the New Deal came around, he was the one poised to take, take advantage of it. He had plans and, quote, you know, shovel-ready projects. And so he had all these parkways that he wanted to build, uh, which you know, at the time meant, you know, a decent road out to uh, the countryside. Um, you know, the, the, the roads that made it out to Long Island for recreational opportunities for people from the city uh, would be like 50 feet wide and then at the city line go down to 18 feet and full of potholes and dirt. And so, you know, when it would rain, people would get stuck in the mud. And when it was, uh, when it was dry out, like people were just choking with dust. And that's the way the, the rich on Long Island kept the rabble out. Was the conditions of Manhattan, especially uh, just a result of unchecked growth, whatever that means. In other words, there was no, uh, no permitting process. There were no, uh, road grid designs at, at city hall that were planned out to accommodate, uh, general areas for certain things like commercial or industrial, uh, et cetera. Uh, was it, uh, just a laissez-faire, um, evolution that resulted in this type of, uh, tenements, in poor living conditions, or were there more complex issues at play here, to your knowledge? I, I uh, to my knowledge, I, I, I couldn't really tell you. I'd have to look. I, I'm more of interested in the 20th century, but a lot of it was laissez-faire. Uh, a lot of it was that same kind of Teddy Roosevelt progressivism of the problem of, you know, the post-Civil War corporate orgy that took place from, you know, 19 uh, or 1870 to, to uh, you know, the early 1900s is there was nobody putting any check on anything. And, uh, you know, the, the, the great waves of immigration that took place between 1880 and 1920, uh, you know, there was always somebody else wanting to get off the boat. If you complain too loud, you could be replaced really easily. So a lot of it was just laissez-faire uh, capitalism, run amok, um, and, uh, ter- you know, things like insurance wasn't a thing or life insurance wasn't a thing. And, and you know, all of that became the thing of the 20th century. So there were these terrible places that people lived that, um, that were slowly improving in the 20th century due to things like the progressive movement. And Moses was a proponent of that sort of stuff. And he worked really hard to get people things like parks and, and rational government and, um, and, and a government that, that could be understood. Unfortunately, you know, he ended his life 
right? Um, and this is this is the story of the 20th century, uh, right? Like uh, the the Tammany Hall corruption, where the, like you organize as a ward boss, and you hand out a bunch of patronage jobs that are, do nothing, and you end the 20th century with Robert Moses's you know agencies handing out contracts to people who are well connected. And it's effectively the same thing. It's just that now it's cloaked in this like veil of like good government and fiscal responsibility and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just just as deeply corrupt. Like, it, it, I mean, you guys have done great shows on the different defense contractors. That it, that's it's a deeply corrupt. It's just as corrupt as Tammany Hall, but but it's better hidden. So for for something like uh, the government to engage in public parks or uh, roads or other infrastructure, there has to be money. And I'm curious how the, the financing of this took place. Was there, you know, a primitive bond of the day issued? Were there taxes? Uh, Yes. Um, So um, Moses was a genius in in a couple things um he uh as president um of the tribal obedience authority um he was able to issue his own bonds that was part of the charter of the tribal obedience authority and because he had the um uh, the toll the toll revenues he was able to bond those out and so he was effectively his own sovereign. Um, you know, he had his own flag, his own little kingdom, his own uh, his own ability to to you know print money essentially. And that's that's a lot of what he was able to do, and a lot of what he was able to make um, uh, rested on the fact that he had this separate source of revenue. But just to um, on the inside cover of uh, the Power Broker by Robert Caro. There's just a couple real quick, like this is what he built. I'm going to give you an idea. For anybody who's ever um, been to New York City or its environs, there's the island of Manhattan. Um, there is on the mainland, there is the, uh, you know, there's Staten Island and um, on or Staten Island, there's the Bronx on the mainland, and um, Brooklyn and Queens on the western edge of Long Island. He built thousands and thousands of, or hundreds at least, of uh, playgrounds. Uh, He built the United Nations headquarters. He built Chase Stadium. He built Lincoln Center. He built the New York Coliseum. He built the uh, Southern State Parkway, the northern state parkway the long uh you know the long island expressway um he, he built the uh fdr uh, the belt parkway he built uh the henry hudson parkway he built in just in an immense immense amount all through new york uh riverside drive park um the triborough you know a bunch of the bridges in and out of New York City, um, the Verzano Narrows uh, Bridge, you know, like all of that, um, 
was was built by Moses. And so New York City today is the physical infrastructure of it is largely the, the legacy of Robert Moses. So if, if I were and, to ask you to plot on a, like a histogram, a distribution of where this activity, frenzy of activity was concentrated. So where, what's the timeline beginning? So 1930 or something, 1920. And then when did it end? And what did that, what did that graph look like? Did it, did it peak in fifties? Did it, uh, did it trough later? What was that um, progression like? Uh, okay, so he, he starts building parks in the 20s under Al Smith, um, Al Smith's second administration. And then he... Um, and he is able to build roads and uh, especially take advantage of uh, WPA funds and really... Um, it goes from the 30s to about 1960. Um, and that's where Jane Jacobs enters the story with the death and life of great American cities is, yeah. So he, it's really from the, the 1930s to the 1950s where he's most active. Um, uh, but he is able to really, really do uh, a lot in into even the 60s, it was the um, effort to end the cross cross Manhattan Expressway um, that really uh, got rid of him and uh, kind of ended his power. But just as just to give you an idea. Um, the many offices and professional titles that Moses held gave uh, at Long Island State Park Commissioner President from 24 to 19, 1924 to 1963, New York State Council of Parks Chairman from 1924 to 1963, New York Secretary of State appointed from 1927 to 1928, uh, Beth Page State Park Authority 1933 to 1963, Emergency Public Works Commissioner Chairman 1933 to 34, Jones Beak Parkway Authority. 33 to 63, 30, uh, New York City Department of Parks Commissioner uh, for 34 to 60, uh, the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority Chairman from 1934 to 1981, New York City Planning Commissioner 1942 to 1960, the New York State Power Authority Chairman 1954 to 1962, the World's Fair President from 60 to 66, and so he, he was just really, really uh, and then officer of the governor of New York, special advisor in housing from 74 to 75. So that's just a, a brief outline of the different offices and stuff that he held. It, was he, he just a, just some guy who got involved in politics or did he have uh, a professional background? Was he an engineer? Was he an architect or none of that? He no, just... he, he had a PhD in political science. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I guess he's uh, qualified to... Analyze it's a big brain, yeah, right. <laughs> Analyze uh, elections, but um, okay. Uh, I feel like I've been asking all the questions. Hank, you got got something, yeah. Hans, Nick? I mean, when we talk about uh, these giant construction projects, especially of building uh, these gigantic uh, uh, expressways, these highways. I mean, if you look at 
what real estate in Manhattan is worth or really anywhere. There's kind of this paradox because uh, just kind of back of the enveloping based on uh, some numbers that I was able to find for estimates. Um, the claim is that if you sort of average out uh, Manhattan real estate, just the land value before you actually build anything is about $120 million per acre, you know, give or take. So every like square foot of sidewalk is a incredible uh, sink in terms of the value that's implicitly uh, locked up in just that bare concrete. But the paradox is that if you literally just blow up all the bridges, blow up all the tunnels, uh, you know, you uh, convert it to one uh, big pastoral uh, brick of concrete, just, just this uh, arcology uh, covering the entire island, suddenly it's worthless because you can't actually get anything in or out of. So the stakes are immensely high because you need to be able to get stuff in and out, like within living memory of uh, when Robert Moses was beginning his career, there were serious problems like getting all the animal excrements off of the island of Manhattan. Like that was a non-trivial uh, problem prior to basically switching over the entire urban infrastructure over to internal combustion engines. So sometimes, there's, yes. sometimes there's this kind of. Uh, uh, a red herring uh, or a caricature of, well, we're gonna we're gonna take this uh, this neighborhood and we're gonna bulldoze it and make a giant freeway, and that's what Robert Moses was into, and that's why people didn't like him. I think that's kind of like the thing. If you kind of boil down in its essence, like if you know one thing about Robert Moses, it's like uh, building too big, knocking down stuff, building huge highways, and you know, you can obviously see why that's going to have mixed effects, but those effects are genuinely mixed without some pretty, uh, pretty empirical methods and a strong sense of uh, kind of what your community actually needs. It's not actually clear uh, which direction that kind of goes in, in terms of it being an obviously good or an obviously bad idea. Well, th certainly that's true, and I would recommend everyone, um, if I can, listen to the episode of Rebel Yell I just put out with uh, Sunny Surface and Pedrick, Mar Pedrick Martin about New Amsterdam. And you got to understand that New York is this great metropolis for a real reason, and that's the Hudson River is the only major river that crosses the Appalachians and is the only um, only way to... Um, and, you know, with the advent of, in 1825, of the Erie Canal, is is that deep-sea connection. Suddenly, you had this, like, closed-loop system from New York through the canal to Chicago to Mississippi River system to New Orleans that could, you know, the, the, the canal cut... Uh, 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 transport cost by 95%. And it was, you know, everything that was exported from that upper Midwest, from Wisconsin, from Minnesota, from um, even parts of Canada uh, would go through the canal and made New York this, uh, this very big 
um, you know, port and uh, and and built this incredible incredible city. And for for people to be like, well, um, you've got to you got to be doing this about it because you know Hans is completely right. You know, that, yeah, he did build all these highways that that you know would just go through neighborhoods and and destroy them. Yes. Um, and he built all these bridges um, that you know would just the you know the, just the, the sheer footprint of the bridge would destroy this neighborhood. But realistically, could you have the Manhattan of today if you were still relying on a ferry? As soon as you're moving stuff over land, that's incredibly expensive. Like it, it's. It's historically it's been easier to ship something from like New York to Miami than it has been to drive it from like New York to Philadelphia. Uh, so when you talk about that sort of that has an effect of you want to concentrate economic activity in these places that are convenient to this waterborne uh, travel and to all of your intermodal uh, transportation later on. But then given that concentration, you kind of want to amortize the costs of ground transportation as much as possible. So if you've already got this huge uh, maritime and rail hub, you actually want it to be as easy as possible to disperse from that hub to the increasingly dense areas around there. So you want like a lot of heavy, uh, not quote unquote transit, like your nice, uh, like green planned economy, uh, liberals will talk about, but you need like transportation infrastructure. You want 16 lanes of traffic each direction so that you can increase that radius where it's productive to move stuff from your extremely cheap uh, intermodal uh, loading and offloading ports into the zones where people can actually live productively. And not to jump ahead, but you know who does this really well today? I'm Singapore, China, like yeah, Bitcoin. yes, Asia, <laughs> yeah. yeah, America ceased being able right. to do this basically when um, the '60s happened. I think that was the end. Right, and we'll, we'll yeah, we'll get into that, but. Um, and the other way, the other direction that you can go with it, besides increase or decreasing the cost of moving stuff, is to try to double down and actually increase the concentration. So that's where you get your notion of, okay, real estate is incredibly valuable because there's all this economic activity because the logistics work out. Let's put as many people as possible. You don't want, you know, your nice... Uh, uh, row houses or whatever you want a gigantic skyscraper uh, full of 10,000 people on that block because that's how you generate enough economic activity that you can fully utilize that uh, infrastructure that God has just plunked onto this particular area so there's a right. uh, there's kind of this idea that like oh we can we can choose like you know oh we want we want like a nice green walkable whatever the hell and to some extent you can enforce that via legislation and now that so much of commerce especially in new york ironically enough 
is kind of uh, virtual uh, in nature, uh, not actually devoted to the shipping of goods uh, throughout uh, this hub. You can get away with some of that, but by the same token, it actually does make sense. Like God is in some sense pointing a finger at Manhattan and being like, build a bunch of stuff here, make it deep and make it wide. Right. And, and not only is New York, the, the, the river transit, it's also the best deep water port on the East coast of the United States. The reason the two, you know, in the early part of the country, the, the two biggest cities on their respective coasts were New York and San Francisco is those are the two greatest deep water ports. And so even even um, the, all the Southern Cotton exports went from, you know, package trades in consolidated, you know, into Baltimore and elsewhere in, you know, Charleston and um, in these little package shipping, you know, in the rivers off the south. And then they would go up to New York, and then that's where they would make the, the transit across the Atlantic. Um, so, you know, New York is this and uh, is this incredible spot where you do have, you know, certain, as Hans is pointing out, you do have certain constraints of reality that are imposed on you of like, yeah, this is so valuable that you have to build. You, you, you can't put single family housing on this. You've got to build up. You've got it. You can't build out. There's there's no space, you know, um, and, and that's just the way it is. I want to clarify for the audience uh, and hopefully anyone who doesn't know by now, but Hank and Hans frequently confused for each other. I believe you meant Hank because I don't think Hans has actually said anything yet. Oh, I'm sorry. That's uh, all good. Uh, do oddly enough. I don't think we sound that. I don't get it, but it is it is not uncommon that people confuse the two. <laughs> I think yeah, it's sorry about that. Being too similar, I should change my name to something else, like Frank. Oh, I'm sorry, Fred or something like that. No, don't worry about it. Uh, well, anyway, so so Moses has this opportunity, right, to, to build things, and he builds all these parkways and expressways, etc. Um, while while Roosevelt is president. And um, in the 1930s, during the Depression, he builds a, you know, huge pools and parks and all this other stuff. And uh, so I think I, I do have a question so far. What was the, co- the cost of all this, like going into the turn of the century, you know, not, not adjusting for inflation? What did it look like in terms of cost to actually start building this infrastructure, to pay people to maintain it, to get around, I'm assuming, bribing people in New York City, because you always have to bribe people in New York City to get anything done. You know, tens it, of millions. It was tens, tens of millions of dollars. Tens yeah, of billions right? of dollars, yeah. But tens of millions then, uh, you know, it'd be much, much more now. Yeah, but, you know. And most of this money was like a conglomerate of private investors that Moses kind of brought together or, or you know, how did the, the actual financial aspect of this work in, in New York City? Okay, so here's how it worked. Primarily as president of the Triborough Bridge Authority, which is responsible for the Robert F. Kennedy Bridge, uh, the Triborough Bridge, which is connects Manhattan, the Bronx, and Queens uh, via Randalls and Wards Island. And effectively, Randalls Island, where the headquarters of the Triborough Bridge Authority is, is 
sovereign territory of was sovereign territory of Robert Moses at the time. Um, uh, the Bronx Whitestone Bridge, which connects the Bronx and Queens, the Rosanna Narrows Bridge, which connects Brooklyn and Staten Island, uh, the Rogs Next Bridge, which connects the Bronx and Queens, the Hudson, Henry Hudson Bridge, which connects Manhattan and the Bronx, the Gil Hodges Memorial Bridge, which connects the Brooklyn and the Rockaways and Queens, um, and the Crossway Veterans Memorial Bridge, which connects Broad Channel to the Rockaways, both in Queens. So he's able to, and then uh, the Hugh Carey Tunnel, the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, and the Queen Midtown Tunnel, which connects Queens and Manhattan. So he's able to take these tolls from these bridges and, and bridge and tunnels. And rather than pay for things um, with those tolls directly, he's able to use them to issue bonds. And he gets, um, you know, gets huge amounts of bond revenue from that. So he's able to use financial leverage to, uh, to create. So he that. sells bonds on the toll generating vehicles and uses that fund uh, money to fund other projects. Correct. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So he just takes like a, you know, second mortgage on the city business yeah. and puts that into a different business. Right. So um, like the, the finding of the Triborough Bridge Authority was you know, started in 1929 and stalled due to the Great, Great Depression. But in February 1933, uh, you know, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, uh, $150 million loan for projects in New York State, including the Triborough Bridge. So he's able to um, use that uh, uh, to make um, uh, huge amounts of money uh, available for other things. Yeah, which so. when you know when you when you talk about uh, local civic infrastructure, it's it's almost never sort of cash flow financed per se because for most of this stuff the pitch uh, at least implicitly is that there's going to be a payoff in terms of the additional tax revenue that you're going to be getting sometimes that pans out and sometimes that doesn't but you can see how uh something like you know the stereotypical development example, like taking your single family homes, bulldozing them and throwing up a bunch of condos, you've got a hundred condos on the same footprint. So you've got, you know, not necessarily a hundred times more, but somewhere a lot more uh, property tax revenue coming in. And given that, uh, given that sort of implicit payoff, it makes total sense for you to uh, borrow uh, that money because the rate of return of building that out, even if you're just looking at the tax revenue, not to say nothing of the, the actual uh, economic activity that's going to your actual citizens uh, just vastly outweighs whatever um, highly subsidized interest rate uh, the city's paying. Right. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, uh, we've mentioned, I've mentioned elsewhere, anything on previous episodes of this program, why that eventually uh, kind of bites you in the ass. 
uh, of constantly chasing um, uh, you know expansion schemes and that sort of thing but 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 this is where it really started you know the first suburb was Levittown on Long Island um, when Moses first got his public start um, farmers uh, fishermen and the wealthy basically monopolized Long Island and kept people out and were able to uh, effectively stop uh, the expansion of the population um, at the border of Queens. Well, uh, now, aside from the far eastern end of Long Island, which is, you know, the preserve, preserve of the ultra wealthy, just as it was then, uh, you know, new uh, Long Island is all suburbs. And it's the sort of car based suburbs that that uh, that development pattern that was established in New York that spread out all over the country. And uh, that, that was what really, um, where his, his greatest influence was, was making this the default pattern and the success and, you know, the glittering streets of Manhattan and that sort of thing. And again, you know, he's not a pure villain because a lot of what he did was necessary. Um, you know, could you imagine trying to feed everyone in New York without the bridges and tunnels that go in and out of Manhattan? I don't think he's a villain at all. I, I don't get this. Well, I do get it, but it's, uh, I mean, can I sum it up? And maybe I, I shouldn't say it now, but I think the people who don't think big, frankly, who can't think big, who don't understand big things, get inconvenienced by big activities that actually are uplifting their society as a whole. And then they rationalize it in their minds that they're uh, the victim. And then they crusade against people like this. Um, I think there was overreach for sure, but to paint him as a villain without taking into account all of the good things he did is completely unfair. I think you have to take it on balance did he do more good than bad? And I would say, yeah. Um, did he do some bad things? Did he step on people's toes? Sure. Uh, but great buildings is not a great spirit to make. Yeah. Well, a lot of these things, you know, now, especially in places like uh, DC, New York, especially San Francisco, uh, <laughs> Basically, whatever you build is sort of implicitly permanent because it's so difficult uh, to actually build anything from regulatory, uh, social, economic, uh, et cetera, perspectives. But there's nothing saying that if you tear down some beautiful old building, like uh, I think, you know, when they uh, built Madison Square Garden, they they tore down. Uh, I forget what the uh, oh, th that was a travesty. I'm against yeah, that for sure. It was a travesty, but the thing is that if you tore it down once, all of these buildings have shelf lives. They all require maintenance, or they require you to tear them down and rebuild them. And historically, that was super common. Like the Japanese don't have, for instance, uh, houses that they just keep uh, in their present condition for like a hundred years at a stretch. They tear down basically all of their residential construction every 20 years or so. 
not all at the same time, but there's sort of a shelf life there. So I th- if I you're think following, that's, that's actually explicit economic policy to keep the construction industry and the macro economy as a whole moving. Right, but it also allows you to have a whoopsie now and again and not be stuck with it. Like if you're just taking every decade's kind of uh, characteristic architecture, and then you hit like you know 1970 and everything goes to shit. Uh, it's like, well, bell bottoms, plaid, and uh, brutalist architecture. It seemed like a really great idea at the time, but uh, you know now it's 1985. We were living in the future now, and we're realizing that it sucks. Actually, there's nothing saying that you can't rip it down historically. Now there actually is. There's uh, numerous things that uh, you know concretize, if you will. Uh, a lot of these shitty buildings and development patterns that outlived their usefulness. But if you're in an era of uh, dynamism like the United States in the 50s and 60s when Robert Moses was doing all of this, there there's nothing that implies that he intended for this to be the way that the city looks up into infinity. It was meant to serve the the sort of immediate development patterns of the city in kind of the best way that he was able to arrange for. And when you try to do that, every so often you're going to make a mistake. And those are mistakes that you don't necessarily avoid by having you know, inclusive community consultation, which is to say payoffs uh, and uh, all the other things that we currently subject ourselves to. Uh, so my question is, you could marvel at a lot of the technical feats that were performed in New York, but I'd like to know what exactly, because effectively Robert Moses was the nominal Jew lord of New York for several decades. What effects did he have on the political life of New York and the country? Ah, well, that's a fascinating question. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so the, the Niagara Power Project is one of his um, uh, crowning achievements, really. Uh, uh, you know, Congress passes the Niagara Redevelopment Act in 1957. Uh, they obtain a license from the Federal Power Commission. Robert Moses commences work on you know, the second hydroelectric dam in early 1958. When it's completed in 1961, the Niagara Power Project was the largest facility of its kind in the world, in the Western world. So he's able to do all this stuff in a time when the United States is the only only economic power in the Western world that has industry. And you guys have talked about this numerous times. He's able to accomplish all this stuff. Um, he was effectively New York City's man in Washington for, for decades. Um, he gets New York lots of federal money. He is, if not the most powerful, he's definitely the top three in the top three most powerful people in the state of New York after the governor and the mayor of New York city. And depending on the mayor, he might've been even more powerful than the mayor. Um, but what he's able to do, um, if he had remained in charge and if the United States had not gone insane in the sixties, I think that his legacy would be much, much more positively viewed. Um, but ultimately disastrous because of that suburban development pattern being ultimately um, 
foolhardy for reasons we've discussed previously. I think that, but because uh, the 60s happened and his, frankly, you know, racial policies uh, were viewed as bad um, and that uh, he was viewed as a villain for those reasons, that a lot of that turning away lessened his power and might have lessened his influence a little bit into the future, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, talking about the suburbs, I think it's understated the extent to which uh, some of the uh, development battles that he was fighting uh, through the lens of racial politics, a lot of what you saw in the switch um, to the suburban development pattern uh, kind of post that era of uh, urban urban dynamic construction, um, however you'd like to label it, it represented the defeat of the model of uh, a kind of a, a border defense uh, strategy to kind of make a, a military analogy and a transition to defense in depth. Like suburbs are a defensive architecture because it's very difficult to ruin an entire suburb all at once. It's very expensive uh, to buy out entire uh, blocks of suburbs. Uh, it's something where if you plunk down a uh, piece of public housing uh, in the middle of Chicago, like you know Calibri Green or something, that area, it's literally more devastated uh, than dropping an atomic bomb on uh, the equivalent neighborhood sands, uh, those... Uh, sands those buildings so the failure of the urban development pattern to actually um, prevent uh, that destruction in a sense kind of forced that alternate development pattern of okay well turns out we can't prevent uh, this destruction of prime urban real estate and we can't we can't sort of salvage this uh, for another 20 years therefore uh, we sort of have to run to the hills and fight our battle there but that doesn't make that model um, sort of unsustainable absent those demographics. Like we've said repeatedly on the show already that other countries manage uh, this economic development pattern because they don't have some of the same demographic issues. Uh, or if they do have the same demographic issues, they rectify them uh, through different uh, forms of economic development like France's uh, Banilus or however you pronounce that. Oh, the Bolognese well, around Paris. Well, and, and that's, I mean, that's, uh, you basically just summed up my entire public career. <laughs> well done. Um, uh, the, the, yeah, you, you can't, um, you can't uh, look at anything in American public life in the 20th century, especially from 1960 onwards, without understanding the, the racial tension and the ultimate failure of the well, the hippies, I guess, or the, you know, Jane Jacobs, you know, kind of enters the story. She starts working for architectural reform in the 50s, and starts opposing Moses in like 1954 uh, when they try to put a road through Washington Square Park and um, ends up leading the effort to stop the cross Manhattan Expressway. But she was, you know, she was a liberal wasp who believed in diversity 
and um, what you know she failed to see was that um, the pathologies of non-Europeans were kept at bay by the repressive social structure that effectively made everyone become a wasp. And uh, her, excuse me, her agitation to, you know, include diversity and to have all this other stuff only worked in, in this, you know, microcosm of the 1950s where times were good, economics were prosperous, uh, you know, the factors of production were super cheap, gas was, you know, like a dime a gallon or something ridiculous back then, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, she's, she's hailed as this great hero of new urbanism and St. Jane who, uh, you know, took on the big bean, you know, racist Robert Moses. And, uh, you know, a lot of what she had to say was right in terms of, if you've read, the, the, you know, the death and life of great American cities, you know, a lot of what she has to say is true. Um, and, and it works really well in a homogenous environment. But, you know, uh, the, the problem with the Pruitt Igo homes wasn't just that they were an architectural disaster. It was the people who lived there. And, you know, she could she could uh, get involved with, you know, the, the Knights Episcopal Reverend in East Harlem and talk about, you know, their community being destroyed. But the problem was that East Harlem was full of criminals and Negroes. And you can't have a nice place to live and they're going to follow their nest wherever they go. You know, they've been doing it for, uh, you know, 150 years, everywhere they go. And, and it's astonishing, you know, if you look at the contemporary development patterns, Steve Saylor sort of has been banging this drum for 10 years or something. But uh, the extent to which the priority of a lot of municipal and these sort of trans-municipal uh, bodies uh has been to quote unquote redevelop, you know, quote unquote gentrify. Uh, there's a lot of uh, different words, but basically unlock uh, the value uh, entailed in this prime urban real estate with this favorable, uh, these favorable logistics by taking that population and through a variety of incentives and disincentives, moving them out to suburbs where they are. Uh, ironically, somewhat more contained just because of the distances involved. But if you actually look at what they build in order to house this new uh, yuppie class, uh, they're not that terribly distinguishable from the gigantic uh, concrete apartment uh, planned housing developments of yesteryear. Like they have a little bit more uh, trim, a little bit more uh, set asides for green space or whatever. But fundamentally, it's like you walk through all that stuff and then you're in your box and then you do the whole thing in reverse in order to go to your job. So although it, it's not ideal to have just gigantic stacks of uh, identical uh, cubes for machines for a living in, uh that is like a somewhat uh, there's an economic equilibrium that seems to result in that pattern uh, time and time again, just sort of with uh, varying levels of niceness, I guess you could say. It doesn't seem like the cubes are the underlying problem here and they're not an underlying solution either. 
they're an emergent phenomenon of how do you channel this economic activity? Well, part of the, and this has been discussed ad nauseum, but part of the reason the suburbs even exist is the fact that these cities stopped working in the 60s. And yes, the General Motors Corporation was lobbying for construction of things like the suburbs so that the car culture would be ingrained further into the American society for sure. Uh, but it was white people and ethnic whites, uh, as documented by E. Michael Jones and Slaughter of Cities, getting busted out of their neighborhoods, leaving the urban areas and going to the periphery uh, because they didn't want to deal with the strife uh, going on with uh, mainly the blacks, uh, but also the civil rights in general movement and, and all that. And people just wanted to have a picket fence. And it, uh, it created a car culture that led to things like the Lower Manhattan Expressway that was blocked. Uh, and the city today is, it's, it's quite interesting to me if you've ever gone to Manhattan, how the, and I'm actually not uh, necessarily against the fact that they blocked that, uh, but it, it is an interesting contrast where you have a place like Midtown where there are most of the newer, larger skyscrapers and most of the core business activity being done uh, where they do have better access to transportation. And you have a place like Lower Manhattan, which is essentially cut off uh, from logistics and the amount of business activity there is much less. Uh, ironically, that's where Wall Street is located, but most of the banks have located it to uh, Midtown and uh, or even to New Jersey or places like that. Uh, but the, the business activity has been basically blocked. And however, you know, the, on the plus side, and if you talk to people who live in New York, uh, the, and again, this is after Giuliani basically kicked out a lot of the, the criminals, uh, and things are actually sliding back into that now with de Blasio allowing, uh, you know, free reign and police not allowed to do anything. But the, uh, the part of lower Manhattan that this expressway was supposed to go to it is sort of still, even though it's super hard in New York to live there uh, as an artist, but it is still more of an artistic area. You need to have more cafes and, and that type of culture, which makes it more um, bohemian and something like Jane Jacobs would uh, enjoy living in. And I don't think that's all bad, but you do have that trade-off where you do have that uh, business community basically saying, okay, well, we're not going to do business here. And I, I think as a microcosm for America, I think that's actually one of the reasons uh, we're getting surpassed by Asian competitors is that there is a preference for this type of living. And I, I don't have a problem with that, but it, it has to be sustainable. And I think uh, with all of the problems with Inherit and being a superpower that has a trade deficit of close to a trillion dollars a year, uh, it's not sustainable, uh, but that enables a lot of these BuzzFeed type uh, journalist people to live in these sort of phony occupations for a period, but then you're going to have very in unstable uh, financial swings uh, and a basically non-existent manufacturing base. I mean, Manhattan actually used to be a very vibrant, uh, not in the cultural sense, but in a business sense a very vibrant activity and hub for manufacturing, believe it or not. And that have, has all gone away. Yes. Yeah, you used to have iron foundries and, of course, the fashion districts. You used to have a massive textile industry. There, well, yeah, the fashion district is in the meatpacking district. That's all gone. Yeah, I, well, I think people, 
you know, they forget that New York City uh, for a long time was effectively like any other city in the north or the old, you know, basically the remnants of the union in that it was a highly industrialized city. And the financial aspect of New York, that it became the center of finance and the center of culture and cultural production, actually followed the same logical tract that pretty much every other city in you know the old Union took. Even in the Midwest, Detroit is a good example. And that basically there is this trend in America of you go from industrial powerhouse metropolis to financial metropolis, cultural metropolis, and then decline because you kind of run out of um, previous generations capital to work with. You know, New York today with its current economic setup, if you basically had to rebuild New York from scratch and you and you said, okay, the, the only the major industry here is going to be finance, it's going to be management services, consulting, it's going to be cultural production, you would not have a massive city like you do and you would not be able to sustain it. Um, and, you know, I think that the infrastructure that you know Robert Moses constructed was built in a time. Or most of it was built, you know, into the 20s and 30s and 40s, when New York was still an industrial city. I mean, obviously, it was tapering off by the 50s, but it was still very much a place where you could find uh, within the heart of the city, you could find a, a relatively large operation that was manufacturing rebar right next to a man, next to an operation that was manufacturing concrete. And maybe three blocks down, you would have, you know, the old New York theater houses. But it used to be a city with a real mixed economy. I think that the New York of today that we see is, is effectively um, living off of a previous generation's industrial wealth. And that's obviously how Absolutely. many the, the large industrial right. trusts got into finance and built the financial industry. The financial industry of New York came out of and after the fact of a large industrial base that existed uh, in the city and, uh, and around the city well into uh, you know, New York State proper, as we think of it, all the way into Rochester right. and stuff like that. There was a huge supply chain that existed. There was an industrial supply chain that is, um, I mean, it's mostly gone now. It's, it's gone in New York City for sure. And I think a lot of the infrastructure that Moses built was intended to support that that supply chain infrastructure for that industry. The industry's gone in New York City. It's gone in Rochester. It's gone in Albany. Um, you know, it certainly has collapsed around the you know the area of the Delaware River. It's collapsed in Mass. It's collapsed in uh, Connecticut. And so much of the uh, I think the infrastructure that Moses built, with like dual use intentions, uh, is now strictly you know, for um, refrigerated logistics, it's for transportation of building materials that are shipped from far out of state. And it's mostly for recreational use now, whereas it used to be, you know, more mixed for partially commercial use. Right. And, and, and say what you will, right? Most of what it was built, it was built during the depression and the forties. Um, it still works. And, you know, stuff that's been built, you know, 20 years ago. Look at the Boston Big Dig project. It's a complete just clusterfuck. And um, the people who would criticize him are using the bridges that he built to live. Like, there's nobody in Williamsburg who's like, man, Robert Moses was so racist, man. Like, you would starve to death, you slimy little BuzzFeed fuck. 
if it weren't for the fact that Robert Moses built all those bridges that bring you food. Shut up. You know, my, my favorite uh, Robert Moses uh, racism anecdote is that supposedly in these, uh, these gigantic pools uh, that he constructed, uh, he, he had the uh, managers keep the water uh, like just slightly colder uh, than it would otherwise be, I guess. You know, turn the heater down. We, uh, we want to we want to promote a more cold tolerant clientele here. <laughs> yes. So, so dark. Um, maybe you could kind of take us into a bit about. Um, I think first, Robert Moses's uh, chief project repertoire, as we've kind of talked about at this point, were uh, parkways, expressways, the Interstate eighty seven, I believe. Uh, a couple other major projects, mostly road and bridge infrastructure. Uh, maybe kind of go into you know how he actually went about building these, what materials he really used. Uh, you know, well, well like- he, he he used various different public authorities and public benefit corporations to to build this stuff. And you know, in terms of materials, he just used concrete. Uh, he was. Um, Influenced by Le Corbusier, who was, of course, a, a dev- and Miles Van der Rohe, who were both you know, devotees of concrete. And, you know, I can hate market and architecture all day long. Um, uh, you know, when it's done right, concrete is an incredible material. You know, it, it's, it's you know, effectively infinitely moldable, very strong, relatively cheap to, you know, low cost. And, um, and well into the, you know, well, probably throughout most of his career, a lot of that concrete would have been uh fabricated you know if not in new york city maybe in the tri-state area or maybe in new york state it would have been more localized well if i could jump in concrete is still made somewhat locally because of the enormous weight it has right uh, and the lack of time you 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 have to like pour it but um Yes, I would agree. You know, and, and a lot of the well, I'm assuming that a lot of the electrical work, a lot of the cast iron plumbing, a, a lot of you know, a lot of just the cast iron hardware itself that you know underpinned a lot of the bridges and causeways. Uh, a lot of the steel at the time probably would have come from tri-state, maybe within New York City, even. Whereas obviously now, uh, it's definitely coming sure. from out of state, probably coming from out of the country uh, on some level. Well, most of the steel was probably actually, you know, um, to call back to a previous episode, you know, Bethlehem or other right. steel from Pennsylvania that would be loaded on Erie Canal or that would be loaded, you know, in Erie, Pennsylvania, and then kicked down the river to Rochester and then taken to the city, you know via that transportation route that we talked about. And so he, he built these incredible, and if you've ever been to Manhattan, the bridges are incredible, you know, spans of miles that are just, I mean, they take your breath away, you know, um, they serve, I think they service, you know, several million cars a day, effectively going back and forth. And, um, You know, if you yeah, if you've ever been on any of the bridges in New York City, if you've ever been on a bridge trying to connect you to from one borough to another, you'll see pretty much every kind of vehicle imaginable. You will see cement mixers, you'll see, you know, huge trucks, you'll see uh, Ford Priuses. I mean, you know, you will see pretty much every kind of car 
every kind of commercial and uh, and civilian utilization of cars kind of alongside each other. It's uh, it's pretty it's pretty incredible. And it's also, you know, I mean, I know people complain about New York traffic, but when you're dealing with a city that has a stable population of what, eight million, probably in any given day, more like 15 million coming in and out for various things. The fact that those bridges stay up, that you're able to get from one place to another within an hour, you know, generally you assume, I think in New York, it takes you an hour to get from one place to another. Uh, the fact that that's possible even today with infrastructure that was mostly built at this point at the latest 40, 50 years ago is pretty incredible, especially given that today New York, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't really construct a lot of new infrastructure doesn't improve on the infrastructure that Moses Bloomberg was I think uh, the last mayor to really try to do anything with the subway system Uh, and ironically today uh, I think I read a couple days ago actually uh, one of these um, either BLM or Antifa nut jobs took uh, took a bunch of metal plates in one of the New York subways and threw it in front of a train. The thing derailed, injured three people, uh, and his name. Uh, I'll let you have a moment to guess to have a form a picture in your mind who this is. I think his name was uh, Demetrius uh, mm. Harvard, uh, if I recall oh. correctly. <laughs> Harvard, right? <laughs> did he go to Harvard? Is that why it's called? No, I don't think he did. Oh. Uh, that would be Vaughn Harvard. Ah, uh, right, right. I was going to say, they probably taught him metallurgy. That sounds like some great uh, yeah. stress testing right there. Yeah, he was laughing yeah, The Federal Reserve, incidentally, yeah. is now directly loaning money uh, to the uh, DC, or not DC, the New York uh, MTA yeah. at uh, about uh, about 8%, or no, not 8, 8 tenths of 1%, uh, which is that freaking sounds, huge. <laughs> that sounds more uh, like the Fed. Yeah. So, yeah. so dark. He, so the concrete, you know, would have been mostly concrete. What else would he have actually used to do? Steel. Steel. Okay. A lot of steel. Um, the the parkways basically concrete and steel. I mean, um, uh, aggregate so, for. Was he still uh, around for the World Trade Center? That was no, the seventies, but no, no, no. He was until the eighty-one. I heard, um, but uh, so that was the seventies. But uh, yeah, he was he was he was alive. He was mostly out of power, but because uh, that alive. was that, that was actually on um, like New York Transit Authority land or something like that. It's some goofy, yeah. and they leased it to Silverstein eventually. Uh, for yeah, uh, Port Authority. Years. Port Authority. That's it. Yeah. Right, and he, um, you know, he's the one who was responsible for the UN building. I mean, you know, he, he died at age ninety two in nineteen eighty one. So. Uh, he would have been alive, but not, not really active in the seventies, just because he would have been in his in his eighties when it was built. So, yeah, just talk about. I mean, if you're anybody's interested in construction and uh, uh, implausible physics, uh, check 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 out the uh, World Trade Center construction videos. Pretty interesting stuff. Uh, tons of steel, tons. I mean, like millions of tons. Probably not millions, but hundreds of thousands or something like that. Uh, just a lot, a lot of material and logistics of going into constructing not one but two gigantic skyscrapers in an extremely difficult part of the city or the country, I should say, to 
get uh, material into. What were uh, what were his chief challenges? I mean, was a lot of this labor? I mean, it's New York City. I'm assuming it was unionized. So did he have a lot of uh, union challenges? I mean, uh, like I said before, in order to get anything done in New York, I think even Donald Trump might be guilty of this. You uh, you have to bribe someone, maybe. Was there a lot of like hand wringing and and payoffs and that sort of thing, or you know, did Moses uh, create a miracle and somehow avoid all of that? Well, he he came up politically and was stymied by the Tammany Hall machine. Yeah. Uh, in his first effort, when he was working for effectively an NGO, trying to you know make government rational in the state of New York, you know when he when he was able to do that, you know there were 187 separate agencies, and he got it down to 16. Um, but you know he understood. Um, that, uh, you know, Bela Moskowitz, who was his political mentor and the one who basically taught him how to really get things done, um, you know, said, you know, those people are voters. So we don't we don't antagonize voters like people with jobs are voters. So, you know, he um, was able to, you know, do certain things like he he paved over uh, a certain uh, you know, powerful park or certain nice park in Central Park for the parking lot for a tavern and the green restaurant, for instance. Um, and he understood that, you know, like jobs for the boys was still part of politics. So um, he was able to uh, kind of change the face of the corruption to more corporate and you know like the the big corporate contractors were the people that he got along with better later in his life you know so uh, he, he's very much the 20th century man and you know started out with this this uh open blatant corruption and became less um obvious but just as corrupt later and and the idea that, that that you're gonna do anything in New York City without it being you know without you know millions and millions of dollars changing hands on a regular basis it's impossible for there not to be some sort of corruption it's just it, it it's impossible you know and and uh, I think his his legacy needs to be understood within the context of of where where he was and what he was doing you know. So, and so when he eventually kind of he, he did stop doing uh, kind of public works or I guess uh, roadways for a while. He did try and do things like uh, the Lincoln Center for Performing Arts. Right? He did Shea Stadium, New York World's Fair in '64. He kind of like I think by what the you know by the '60s it seems like he had very much established himself as the go-to guy. I'm assuming if you wanted to make something happen, even if it wasn't, you know, uh, a causeway, if you wanted to build something in New York City, you went to Robert Moses and and asked him to do it. Yeah. Is is that pretty accurate? Yeah, even into the 60s, you know, he was still still powerful and important. I think that I think age and the general insanity of the time caught up with him. Yeah, because there's a huge like gap in time from 64 to 71 where he doesn't 
uh, doesn't really have a lot of projects going on, as far as I can tell. He uh, kind of drops off after Shea Stadium and, and the World's Fair. And right. he, well, works, he, he works on the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel uh, in 71, or I think he gets it complete. Um, and then there's another large right. gap in time until 78 with Interstate 78. Right. And I, I think he just had less... Uh, you know, the power broker comes out and he loses a lot of power and cachet that way. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller is able to effectively sideline him. Um, and, and he was governor for many, many years. And so and, and, and also he'd been at it for four decades. I mean, he'd, he'd been doing public stuff since the 19 teens. So 60 years of, of work at that point by the 70s. And I think he was just tired, you know. He'd been widowed, and um, I, I think that that uh, what what you know there wasn't more much more he could do, and and I think that he just kind of retired. Well, let's talk about Jane Jacobs. I mean, apparently uh, the power broker itself doesn't even mention her, and if you listen to uh, NPR, PBS. Uh, you name the uh, the liberal academic outlet, uh, they're going to uphold Jane Jacobs as this uh, equal, if not superior, to Robert Moses. And uh, people like Nassim Taleb have cited her uh, versus Robert Moses as, as sort of antipodes in the philosophy of big centralized projects versus decentralized systems. Uh, let's talk about her. Gonna have to be quick, but yeah, let's do that. Um, so, Jane Jacobs is uh, born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, as a Jane Bustner, and uh, she marries uh, Jacobs in during World War II. And so they 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 she is a professional journalist and writer, and she writes you know the death and life of great American cities in 1961, and by 1968 she's an expat in Canada. So that we're talking about a real brief period where she tried to stop from 1954 when she tried to stop paving uh, a road going through Washington to Square Park to her attempting a successful stop at the Washington uh, or the Manhattan Expressway. Um, that, that she's really the foe of Robert Moses, quote unquote. And, and she writes this book in 1961 that Death and Life of Great American Cities, talking about the kind of the integrated stuff that we've talked about in the past, and 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 she's written several other books, you know, all of which are very good. I don't, you know, yeah. um, and yeah. I would I would encourage people to read them, but but don't don't think of her as like this all-seeing person. Yeah, I've heard her interviewed. And I was I was impressed with her intellect, uh, or at least her quickness. You know, she seemed like she was reasonable and she wasn't insane, like so many leftist activists that I have unfortunately come across in my life. Uh, so she she had a good head on her shoulders. There, I didn't see anything wrong with her. Uh, she obviously had a certain pre- set of preferences that were different than Moses. Um, I wouldn't necessarily put her, you know shoulder to shoulder in terms of equals. Uh, but in terms of like the adoration she gets, she's probably above Moses, uh, almost no doubt uh, that tons of people adore her. 
probably for obvious reasons that she's a woman. And so, you know, they, they view her as like a champion of the underdog or something. Uh, you know, she said reasonable things like, Oh, you know, why do we need to, I, I, I'm not going to quote her, but I, I'm just sort of trying to imbue the, the vibe that I got. She, she didn't want to have a city for, for cars. She wanted a city for people. I think that's the best way to put it. Uh, she right, but, a, but, but she also was a champion of diverse economy of cities and that cities need, you know, like that cities grew their economy by what she termed reimportation in her, in her book about the economics of cities. And what she effectively meant by that was like, um, they, instead of importing shoes, they started manufacturing shoes. Yeah, that's fine. And, and so, you know, she, she was, she lived in Greenwich village and then Greenwich village when she tried, you know, when she saved it from the Manhattan expressway was this place where people would did all kinds of different things. And she got her journalistic start, you know, writing pieces for Vogue about the fur district and the diamond district and the flower district and all of these different little places in New York that did valuable things. Yeah. And I agree. now, and now the fur district is gone. As you guys pointed out earlier, the, 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 all the activity that she wanted to preserve as diverse and wonderful and non-homogenous and all of that, and that all the NPR people think, oh, she's so great. Well, it, yeah, but she was also like a, a, a fan of the meatpacking district, hacking actual cows, you know, being slaughtered and turned into steaks. And that would make the tote bag crowd wince. So... Yeah, I, I, I view her as basically somebody who like had a good lens on the street, but couldn't really zoom out and understand the big picture of actually why those things either are there or whether they can survive uh, with just you know a bunch of uh, people holding picket signs. Like you, you can't just take back your community. You have to compete and survive in a marketplace. And I'm not saying like it's great that we all you know, live in this globalized system. I, I don't like that. But without understanding that, it's sort of naive to sort of expect that you can keep all these little nice little coffee shops and whatnots and shoe, shoe uh, cottage industries in lower Manhattan uh, and expect that to continue given the market. It's, it's too hard. And you have to be able to have a, a better, more elegant solution to dealing with that if you actually want those things. And Sometimes it's just not possible, unfortunately. Well, I would argue that she did see the big picture really well, but I would, what I would say is that the people who are her champions now don't understand her or the necessity of the big picture. And they can talk about, like, um, you know, when she's talking about diversity, she's talking about economic diversity, class diversity, um, so that it's not so Manhattan isn't just a place for all rich people. Um, and the middle class needs to be able to have a place to live, you know, inside these places. And right now they don't. And the reason they don't is, you know, the people that took over New York in the 60s uh, didn't want middle class people to uh, have places to live because they had to be racist to do it. <laughs>